the book of James this summer, page 979 in the Bibles that you have in front of you there. One more week and we'll have read the whole book through together. And I've, if you've been here, you know I've challenged all of us to be reading that one chapter of James every day for the week, right? So last week some of us read James chapter 3 every day. And for this coming week we'll read James chapter 4 every day. It's a pattern of reading the Bible that can be that can be very effective in helping us to hear things in a new way, to, to see some new perspectives that we don't get if we just breeze right over some of these passages quickly. But honestly, even as, as we're doing that, I realize that it still doesn't capture, it doesn't do complete justice to, to the original form of the book of James. We need to remember that this wasn't a book. That this was originally written as a letter from James to a very specific group of believers. To, to small groups of believers all over the then known world who were just learning what it meant to be church together. It was a letter. And think about how you read a letter. I realize letters are really old school nowadays, right? You don't get much good mail anymore. So maybe think about how you read a long email that you get, right? How do you read a letter? How do you read a long email like that? You, you read it all in one sitting, don't you? You don't, you don't take a letter that your grandma wrote you and read the middle paragraph and then set it aside for a while, right? You don't read one paragraph at a time each day. You don't pull a sentence out and say, you know, I'm just going to look at that one sentence today and ignore everything else. That's not how you read a letter, is it? It doesn't make sense because a letter is written as a whole with a common thought. And, and what you have in front of you with all the chapter and verse markings, they were put in there later, right? So that, so that we could study it and know what pa passage and what section we're reading together. But those chapter and verse markings really sometimes distract us. They, they take away the truth of, of the flow of the thought and the letter format that this was intended. In fact, Here's another challenge for you. Sometime, with all these New Testament letters, I challenge you to pull up a version of the Bible, maybe on your computer, if you have one at home, that doesn't have chapter and verse markings. And sit down sometime and read the whole letter straight through. Because it, it sounds very different from chapter to chapter. And you'll be amazed at how short, like a book of James, is. you think, can I read the whole book of James? It'll probably take you like 15 minutes most. It's not that long of a book. But read it that way sometimes, without letting the numbers get in the way. And hear the thought of a letter. It all fits together as one whole. And I want us to realize that this morning before you read James chapter 4. Because James, chapter, James 4 finds a lot of its meaning in context from James 3 that we looked at last week. Okay, remember, if you were here last week, James, in James 3, he reminds us of the importance of learning to control our tongues, the value and power of our words, right? We learn that our words not only, first of all, reveal who we truly are, right? Our words reveal what's in our heart. Remember what Jesus said? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So our words, our tongues, reveal who we are. But James also told us that our tongues and our words direct who we become, Right? They, they set the course of, of either following, at the end of the chapter, the wisdom of this world, or we follow the wisdom of heaven. 
And remember in verses 16 and 17 of, of James chapter 3, he, he, he defines those two different kinds of wisdom, right? Live accord, living according to the wisdom of the world, he says, leads to disorder in every evil practice. Okay, and, and if we're living according to the wisdom of God, he gives us those characteristics in verse 17. He says, then, then our lives will be peace-loving and considerate and submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. We'll, we'll be peacemakers. Right? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, okay? Now, in chapter 4, James takes this theoretical, right? And, and he and he makes it practical for the church. He looks directly at, at this Christian community, these small Christian communities, these churches that he's writing to. And first of all, he's watching how they're living their lives together. What kind of reputation do they have? What are they doing within their community? And then he holds up this, this value. Are they living according to the wisdom of the world as a church? Or are they living according to the wisdom of God? as a church. A pretty bold thing for a pastor to do, to be honest with a church like that. Especially when we read what he writes to them here. Listen to his evaluation, verses 1 through 12 of James 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell within us? But he gives us more grace. That's why the Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? All right, it's pretty easy to see that these believers are living, living out the wisdom of the world, not the wisdom of God. We sit here and read this chapter pretty calmly. None of you gasp at anything, but when these first century believers received this letter, this section, there were multiple times when they would have gasped, when they would have been shocked and stunned. They're living out the wisdom of this world because their relationships with each other are a mess. 
right? They are a church community that's fighting with each other. They're quarreling amongst each other. They're at each other's throats, and they're unable to get along. And really, James lays into them pretty forcefully here in chapter 4, pretty directly. Okay? Remember from chapter 3, then, these quarrels, these fights, these angry words of speaking to each other reveal what's truly in their hearts, what's at the core of their lives, and what's at the core of their church community. And it isn't God. Their words are not revealing God. As they're battling each other, they're revealing that they are far from the peacemakers who sow peace and raise a harvest of righteousness that James is looking for that shows the wisdom of God. Okay, so he's addressing a church that can't get along. And our 21st century ears better perk up for this first century message. Because really, the, this letter could have been written directly to us, right? Because there's still plenty of churches 20 centuries later that still have a hard time getting along together. Have a hard time sitting in the same room together. Far too often, what we call here as communities of faith could be more honestly described as communities of fighting. Right? People come to the church looking for a place of grace and peace and acceptance. And often they walk in and they find, they find us fighting. They find anger. They find division. They find us fighting and quarreling about what songs we should sing, about what instruments we should use. You find us complaining, arguing whether the service was too long or too short. We're complaining about whether we like the pastor or his sermon. We're complaining and arguing about the, what color the carpet should be or, or what flavor the coffee should be. And, and if you've been here at all, you know Ivernest Church is not immune to these kinds of fights and quarrels. We've had our moments. We still do. So our ears should perk up for the very pointed and practical words that James has for them and has for us. And it's interesting that James doesn't challenge them on their symptoms. Okay, we don't find in this chapter that he, he teaches them how not to fight and how not to quarrel. He doesn't address their symptoms. And, and, and by the way, it's interesting that he uses both those words. He uses those words in a pairing Twice. And so when you see a pairing like that twice, you wonder, wait, what's the difference between those words? Why does he say fighting and quarreling and then quarreling and fighting? Well, the word he uses for fighting points specifically to, to a battle with weapons, right? An armed conflict. That's a fight. A quarrel is a fight without weapons. It's a personal conflict among friends. And so you got them both going on here. You have outright animosity towards people, enemies that you fight with weapons, and you have friends who can't get along, who are quarreling together. These two words expose a deep division, a deep division and brokenness within the community of God. And in pairing these two words, James gives us a picture of a community in which lines have been drawn, sides have been chosen. Positions have been dug in deeply, and people are forced to choose a side. There's an open antagonism towards each other within the family of God. And it's important, now it's important for us to remember that in any healthy community, there will be differences. There will be disagreements. You put more than one person in a room, you got disagreements, right? 
Those dis- disagreements can be good. They can be healthy when they're handled well. Right? We're told in Scripture that iron sharpens iron. We can, we can sharpen each other well. We can learn from each other. We can learn from our differences when we approach each other with hearts that are grounded in the wisdom of God. Right? So through our differences, we can learn about giving grace to each other. We can learn about making room for each other and our differences in the family of God. We can learn what it means to live in a diverse community. We can learn that we don't always have the right answers. We can even learn about confession and repentance and forgiveness. But some church communities become permanent battlegrounds where people are more interested in being right and being in control and about winning than they are interested in being peace-loving and considerate and submissive and full of mercy and good fruit and being impartial and sincere and peacemakers. All those characteristics from James chapter 3, right? From the godly wisdom. And this kind of quarreling and fighting hurts people spiritually, right? It destroys our message. our our witness to the world. We model a community that people don't want to be a part of and a Jesus that they want nothing to do with. So that's why James doesn't settle for, for addressing the symptoms that are going on here. He dives right into the root of their divisions right away in verse one. He's not interested in just the symptoms. He doesn't give them a lesson on communication skills with each other, a lesson on interpersonal relationships. He goes right to the core of the issue and the source of their divisiveness. And the root of their battles are not coming from from persecution that they're enduring. It's not coming from deep theological debates as they try and discern the truth. Their divisions, he says, are rooted in their desires. In verse 1, he says, rooted in your desires and in their pleasures. He uses that word in verse 3. And the word he uses for desires is the root word word for our word, hedonism. Hedonism. It's the life value that holds pleasure as the main goal of living. What's life all about? What is your purpose? What is your goal? To find pleasure. Whatever brings you happiness. That's hedonism. And I'm pretty certain that the hedonism that he's pointing to here in the first century is the hedonism that is still the number one enemy of our Christian character and of our commitment to God here in the 21st century. James is pointing directly at an attitude that is willing to fight for what will bring me pleasure and comfort within the community of the church. It's all about me. All the way back in the first century church, it was already about me and what I want and what I like and what will serve me and what will make me happy. It's the same trap we fall into today. But the truth is, and you know this, this community called the church is not about me. It's about God. It isn't about what will bring me pleasure. It's about what will bring God pleasure. What will bring a smile to his face? And when we continue the 2,000-year-old tradition of fighting for what we want and what will make us happy, we are living out the battle between the wisdom of God, 
right? A, a community of grace and the wisdom of this world that says go for the pleasure, go for the comfort, get all you can get that makes you happy. Right? And then in verse 2, James takes this truth and he uses, a, he uses some stunning language that takes this battle, this quarrel, this selfishness to a whole new level. Okay, it's a word that would have, would have kind of shocked his first readers, right? Their desires take them from quarreling and fighting, he says, to killing. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. That, that's a shocking leap from fighting and quarreling to killing. And, and we don't have any evidence that anybody in these church conflicts ever actually murdered another person. Although throughout history, others have taken that step, gone that far, right? These church battles have gone so far as that they actually killed each other. We don't have evidence that that happened here in the first century. But I think James is pulling our minds back to what Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 5. Remember what Jesus said? These are his words. He said, you have heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. In other words, the same judgment that you get for murdering someone is the same judgment you deserve and you will get for being angry at someone. It doesn't matter, Jesus is saying, whether you're killing them physically or whether you're, whether you're killing community or killing peace or killing mercy or killing another person's character. So James does not minimize at all this self-centered conflict within the church. We can't either because God doesn't. Jesus raises them to the same level. Our desire within this community must be to get what we need to grow spiritually, what we need to cultivate a healthy and a deeper relationship with God. That's our passion. And often our quarrels and our fights are evidence that we are more passionate about what we want than what we truly need. We're fighting for the wrong things. And when we're busy fighting passionately for the wrong things, for the things that we want, then God, James tells us, can't give us what we truly need because we won't be open to receiving it. So at the end of verse 2, we read a line that often gets taken out of, out of context here. James writes, you do not have because you do not ask God. And too many times... Throughout history, we, we've taken that sentence out of context, right? For the whole letter, we just read that one sentence. Just pull it right out, right? And, and we take that as permission to ask God for whatever we want. And if we just have faith enough, then God will give us what we want, right? What we ask for. And so, and so we boldly ask for what we want. And we want some really good things, right? We dare to go to God and say, I'm asking for a bigger house and I'm asking for a newer car. I'm asking for better grades. I'm asking for a fun vacation. I'm asking for, for victory on the basketball court or the soccer field. I'm asking for a great retirement now that it's begun. I'm asking for physical healing. I'm asking for, for a successful career. 
And we expect God to give us what we ask for, right? James says, ask and God will give it. Like God's our personal butler. I've asked, so it's God's responsibility to provide. You do not have because you do not ask. Well, that kind of attitude of God just give me everything I want is exactly the opposite of what James is trying to teach us here. James is digging down behind the motives behind our asking and he discovers that our desire for pleasure is our motive for asking and that motive is unacceptable. What James is communicating here is that you don't have what you desire because you don't desire God. This is a battle between selfish pleasure, right? Hedonism, the God of our day, and dedication to God that's being waged within each one of us and being waged in this community. What are we pursuing? What are we truly most interested in, most passionate about? What are we willing to fight for and defend? Is it our plans and our purposes and our desires and our preferred future? Or is it God's plans and God's purposes and God's desires and his preferred future for our lives, for our neighbors, for our friends, for our church? We need to be asking God, what he wants for this community. Instead of telling him what we want, then asking him to back our plans. Then we will know what to ask for. Then we will ask for the right things because our desire for God will change what we ask for. It will truly change what we fight for. So what's our true desire? Our willingness to fight and quarrel and ultimately kill our relationships, to kill off our community, is evidence that we desire something else more than we desire God. It's so clear to James when he wrote this letter. Right? And, that, and that desire for something other than God is what led him to the next word that truly shocked his first century readers. Verse 4 would have stunned them as they first read this letter. It should stun us as well. He pulls no punches here. He calls those who are fighting and quarreling, those who are pursuing their own desires, he calls them adulterous people. Now I thought as I was writing this sermon of all the modern day synonyms I could use that would have the same effect on us that it did that for those first century believers. And I figured that if I used them, I'd have a parent or some elders talking to me afterwards. That's how shocking this is. Spiritual adulterers. He accused, it's an Old Testament term. It's a concept the prophets often use. And James says, I'm pulling out from the Old Testament, from those, those fire and brimstone prophets, and I'm giving it to you. We are adulterous people. When we say that we love God, when we sing the songs that we did just now, and then we have an affair with the things of this world, with this world itself. Because we can't have it both ways. We can't have two true loves. You get one. And that's what God means when he says that he's a jealous God. It means he won't share us. 
He won't share our love with anyone else. He needs to be number one. And it's not okay for us to cheat on him. And that's what we're doing when we live lives together as a community or as individuals, desiring the things of this world above God. That's what we're doing when we're more passionate about what we want out of life than what God wants. That's what we're doing when we're willing to tear each other apart, to tear apart the family of God with, for, with fights and quarrels over the things that God doesn't really want us to quarrel and fight over. You get one true love. And how we live reveals what that love truly is. It's not possible to love God and love this world. You can't pursue what this world values and what God values and desires at the same time. It doesn't work. It's either or, not both and. So what do we need to do? We can't deny that we, like our first century brothers and sisters, have tried to keep a foot in both worlds, right? We tried to follow both the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. But if we truly want to be faithful in our love to God, if we want to live according to his wisdom, James tells us how. Right In the end of this chapter, he gives us six steps to live out God's wisdom, verses 7 through 10. And each of these steps is, is written as a command, a command to be accomplished immediately. Not, hey, work on this for a while. Hey, head in this direction. Each of these is, do this now. Do this now. And each of these commands could be a sermon all into itself, but you're just going to get the list this morning because you've had enough of a sermon already. Here's how we start. Six things. First, James says, start by submitting yourselves to God. Okay, like a soldier. This is the, the submission that a soldier gives to his commanding officer, right? It's complete submission. We must constantly recognize God's desires ahead of our own. Not my will, but yours. I will obey whatever you say. I'm going to submit to you, God. Submit to God. Number two, resist the devil. In other words, James is saying, be aware of the spiritual battle going on all around us and within us. And stand strong in that battle for what's right and what is pure. Know the enemy around you. Know how Satan works and be ready to resist your sinful nature that rises up within you. Don't knowingly put yourself in a position of temptation, okay? Resist the devil. Know you're doing battle. Number three, come near to God. Notice it's us doing the moving. God is always nearby. God is always present to us. We are the ones who create the distance, who forget about him, who move away from him. We need to cultivate this relationship with God if we're going to be in this spiritual battle together. We need to, we need to open this book and read it because this is where we find out who he is. We need to set aside, set aside time to talk with him and to listen to him. He'll stand with us. He'll stand for us if we stand with him and for him. So come near to God. And then number four, you're going to have to do this if you come near to God. 
wash your hands and purify your hearts. Now, James isn't worried here about germs. What he's asking for, what he's calling us to is spiritual health. Purity in our hearts and our lives. Because remember, godly actions, those pure hands, those clean hands, godly actions will come out of godly thoughts and motives, a godly heart, a pure heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the hands do. So our actions flow out of what is in our hearts, so make sure they match. Wash your hands, purify your hearts. Number five, grieve, mourn, and wail. Now there's an encouraging step, isn't there? Grieve, mourn, and wail. Be honest about this process. There will be some repenting that all of us are going to have to do. There's going to be some dying to, to the way that you live your life. A dying to the old way of sin. There's going to have to be some repentance. We're going to have to set aside our choices that were rooted in greed. We're going to have to kill off that lifestyle that was rooted in selfishness. We're going to have to change decisions we make that were based on hedonism. And on and on it could go. We're going to have to, we're going to, have to change some, some choices that were based on lust. We're going to have to change and learn how to control that anger. We're going to have to repent of some things. And we're going to have to kill those things off in our lives. Are you willing to do that? Are you so willing to desire the things that God desires and to live the way that God desires that you're going to change your life, you're going to repent of how you used to live, and you are going to live for God? You're going to actually change. You're going to be different tomorrow because you are here today. And that might take setting aside some pleasures of this world. And the world's going to say you're crazy to do it. Setting aside some pleasures of this world in order to get the true joy that only God can give. The fullness of living with him, in him, and for him. And finally, number six. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And if you do, he will lift you up. Humility, submission, trust. That's what it takes to follow God, to live in the wisdom of God. It takes praying your kingdom come, your will be done, and really meaning it. It means wanting what God wants and nothing more. And God lifts up, James says, those who are humble, those who dedicate themselves to his desires and to his plans. Isn't, it, isn't that what grace is really all about? Grace is our empty hands, our humble hands, willing to receive. And you know, it's really hard for me to picture somebody who has truly humbled themselves before God. It's hard for me to picture them quarreling and fighting and working to do whatever they can to get their own way. I don't think that's possible. So we have a choice, each one of us and us together as a community. We can live lives that follow the wisdom of God or the wisdom of the world. Last week it was with our words. James said, careful with your words. Now he says, be careful with your lives. 
with your daily actions. Because your life will show what you love. Be faithful to your one true love. Let's spend some time in prayer together. Would you pray with me? Father God, you called us to be faithful to you, our one true love. As I look over this community gathered here this morning, I thank you that you unite us by love. We are united by our love for you, and we are still learning how to be united by our love for each other. Father, may our love for you grow stronger and stronger each day. May you be our only want and our only desire. You know all the other desires that, that pull us away from you. The other gods in our lives. The other priorities that try and take first place instead of you. And you know how often we say yes because... It's so tempting. The way of this world, the wisdom of this world is what often will bring us riches and success and power and glory. It will bring us all those things that don't ultimately satisfy because only you do. Father, help us to show our love for you in our actions. May May our desire for you and your purposes shape our daily lives, Father, so that the world around us, our neighbors, our friends, our children, our spouses, might see you when they see us. Help us to fall in love with you more and more and to be faithful to you. Father, shape our community here to love you more and more. And then shape this community so we might continue to learn how to love each other. Sometimes there's obvious opportunities where you call us to love each other in powerful and practical ways because there are many who are struggling in life, facing difficult challenges. This past few weeks has been, has been hugely challenging for so many in this community. We continue to pray for Dale Boss and Isaac Postma. And we especially now pray for Chris Vanderslice as he's out of remission and back into treatment again. Pray for Chris and Tanya that you give them strength for this difficult journey. You help them to journey hand in hand with you wherever it leads. We continue to pray for the family of Dorothy Weller and Cora Prince as they're getting used to life without people they love with them. We pray for Bob and Carol Dice and the sudden death of their daughter-in-law. We pray for Todd Brink and his family as they're mourning the loss of both a brother-in-law and a brother. And Father, there's so many more, that, so many hurts and sorrows in this community that we haven't shared with each other. We shared with just a small group or a life group. And Father, help us to be the kind of community that loves and cares for each other in very practical ways for those who are hurting. Help us to care for those who are hurting spiritually, Father. For those who come here full of doubts, full of questions, we ask that those doubts and questions might lead to great conversations together as we seek to find faith together. 
We know there's people who are hurting deeply here because people they love, maybe their own children, maybe their own spouse or their own parents, don't love you, don't know you, won't listen. I just pray for patience, Father, for godly lifestyles and godly words, for people to step into their lives, for your spirit to move. Father, I pray for grace and unity here at Ivanrest Church. May we together see a common love for you above all our differences. Teach us how to speak truth in love and to make room for each other in this community. Give us a passion to desire the things that you desire so that we might work together for justice and mercy in this world and in this community. We pray for that, Father. We pray that we, the church, might make an impact in this country, in this world, in this city, in your name and by your power. That this community would be so different that people can't help but see you. Father, in a week where the headlines were filled with threats of of nuclear bombs, of armies, of war, may we be a community that models and calls for peace and justice. And even yesterday, Father, as we read the headlines of, and we saw the power of hatred and racism and bigotry and terror in our own nation, may we, the church, may we, followers of Jesus Christ, bring unity instead of division. May you use us, the church, to heal the racial brokenness in our country. Use us to remove the evil of terrorism that threatens and kills. We do ask that you'd help our leaders to speak truth and to unite us together. But most of all, help us, the church, to lead the way in healing our divisions and bringing justice to the oppressed. Help us, the church, to stand and speak love. And forgive us, Father, for our silence and for our inaction. Father, we are, all, we are all, every single one of us, a part of your community, a part of your family together. As individuals, help each of us to find our place where you have called us in this community. And as Ivan Rest Church, help us to find our place where you have called us in this city and in this world. May we as individuals and may we as a church pursue your desires and your purposes above all else. May we love you, Father, as our one true love and help us to be faithful to you. If we've been spiritually adulterous, Father, forgive us. Bring us back home and welcome us into your arms. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Would you stand?